Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. He doesn't have a bipartisan bill. Nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, February 3rd, 2015. I'll start off our general news section by talking about the President's budget request for fiscal year 2016, and, more significantly, what his proposals could mean for the tax credit community. Then, I'll discuss the Congressional Budget Office's budget and economic outlook for the years 2015 through 2025, a budget and economic outlook that will be used as a benchmark for lawmakers as they consider tax and spending changes. I'll also talk about the new subcommittee leaders of the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee. Then, we'll move on to our low income housing tax credit section, where I'll talk about the Housing Trust Fund interim rule that HUD published last week. I'll also discuss the estimated allocations from the Housing Trust Fund as projected by the National Low Income Housing Coalition. In related news, I'll briefly mention a bill that was introduced in Congress that would prevent Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac from funding the Housing Trust Fund and Capital Magnet Fund while they're under conservatorship. Next, I'll have information about a webcast and a webinar that are coming up this week. One is on taxes and bonds, and the other is on local housing tax credit compliance. The last thing I'll talk about in this section is news on Buzz Roberts, who is leaving the U.S. Department of Treasury to head the National Association of Affordable Housing Lenders. In new market tax credit news, I'll share some details about a new bill that's about to be introduced that would make the new market tax credit a permanent part of the tax code. Then I'll talk about a new bill in California that would create a $200 million state new markets tax credit program. In historic tax credit news, I'll talk about how a memo issued by the IRS and what it clarifies for regarding Section 50D income. After that, I'll share state-level news about the historic tax credit programs in Rhode Island and Iowa. In our renewable energy tax credit section, I'll discuss what Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado recently had to say about extending the production tax credit. Then I'll end with news of a bill that was introduced in Oklahoma to reduce the state production tax credit. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, President Barack Obama yesterday unveiled a nearly $4 trillion budget for fiscal year 2016. I say nearly $4 trillion because the budget came in at $3.999 trillion in spending. I suspect that some minor, that's minor in federal budget spending terms, some minor spending programs were lowered or removed from the budget in order to keep the fiscal year 2016 spending amounts from being the first $4 trillion budget. Now, with budget spending at $3.999 trillion and budgeted revenue of $3.53 trillion, the annual budget deficit is budgeted at $474 billion. I note that net interest expense on the national debt for fiscal year 2016 is projected at $283 billion. So of the $474 billion deficit, $283 billion of it can be viewed as being interest on the national debt. 
The budget also, I note, assumes that the 10-year Treasury is going to rise to 4.5% over the next five years. It currently stands at below 2%, or in the 1.7 to 1.8% range. Now, the budget requests nearly $1.1 trillion in discretionary spending. And in case you're wondering, that's $74 billion more than the levels in the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2013. The $74 billion increase is split almost exactly 50-50 between defense and non-defense spending. The proposal would fully offset the increase by raising revenue and mandating certain spending reforms. Now, I'll highlight for you some of the points most important to the tax credit community. First of all, there are several provisions to reform and expand the low-income housing tax credit. For one thing, it would allow states to convert up to 18% of their private activity bond volume cap into low-income housing tax credits. This is an increase in the requested conversion authority from that that was included in the 2015 budget. And, if implemented, would translate into a roughly 50% increase in allocable 9% tax credits if every state used the maximum 18% conversion rate. Similar to last year, the proposal would not extend the temporary 9% credit floor that expired at the end of 2014. Obviously, that's something many LHTC advocates hope for, but unfortunately didn't expect to be included in the budget. The budget does propose alternative means of calculating the annual tax credit percentage similar to the prior budget. Under this formula, the discount rate used in the present value calculation for allocated long-term tax credits would be the average of the midterm and long-term applicable federal rates for the relevant month plus 200 basis points. In essence, this change in the formula would make the rate more responsive to changes in market interest rates. However, the rate today would be less than 9%. One entirely new proposal that would remove, or I should say would remove, the cap on the qualified census tract designation for basis boosts. So what is this? Well, under current law, a 130% basis boost, or really a 30% basis boost over the 100% original basis, is available for properties in qualified census tracts with certain property rates, or area median income levels. However, there's a cap for this designation. If the aggregate population of a census tract exceeds 20% of the metropolitan area population, the budget proposal would remove this aggregate cap and thus enable more properties in more areas to receive the boost. Now, for programs under the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, the budget would provide a $49.3 billion funding amount. That amount is $4 billion, or 8.7% more than the 2015 enacted level. Now, part of that would be $21.1 billion for the Housing Choice Voucher Program, which includes $18.3 billion for Section 8 renewals, which is a nearly 5% increase from last year. HUD's budget would also have $10.8 billion for project-based rental assistance programs, and that's about $1 billion more than last year's funding level. Now note that the budget request amounts depend on projected FHA and Ginnie Mae receipts to offset HUD program costs. But I note also the Congressional Budget Office has rejected this in the past. The President's budget also includes a proposal that community development stakeholders have long advocated. For the third year in a row, the President's budget proposed permanently extending the new market tax credit. It would authorize the program at $5 billion per year and would give authority 
to offset alternative minimum tax liability with the new market tax credit. Also, similar to last year, the administration proposed creating a new manufacturing communities tax credit. The program would target investments in places that don't necessarily qualify as low-income communities, but have suffered or expect to suffer economic disruption from a major job loss event, such as a military base or manufacturing plant closing. The Manufacturing Communities Tax Credit would be authorized at $2 billion a year through 2018. Now, looking at renewable energy, the budget would modify and make permanent the production tax credit and the 30% investment tax credit. I invite you to check out our latest blog post for more details. To find the blog, simply Google Novogradic and WordPress.com. It will take you right there. You can also find a copy of the proposed budget and related documents at www.novoco.com slash hot topics. I also note the House Committee on Ways and Means held a hearing this morning on the President's budget proposals. The sole witness was Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu. I'll have more information on that hearing next week. In other news, the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, last week provided testimony about the federal budget and the country's economic outlook for the years 2015 through 2025. The report includes an economic forecast and projections of spending and revenues under current law. Current CBO Director Douglas Elmendorf presented the information at a House Budget Committee hearing last Tuesday. The CBO estimates that the deficit for fiscal year 2015 will amount to $468 billion, slightly less than the $483 billion in 2014. The deficit is 2.6% of gross domestic product. That's the smallest relative to the nation's output since 2007. Looking ahead, the deficit in the year 2025 is projected to be $1.1 trillion, or 4% of the gross domestic product. And cumulative deficits over the 2016 through 2025 time period are projected to total $7.6 trillion. Although the federal budget deficit has fallen sharply in the past few years, the CBO projects that the gap between spending and revenue will start growing again in 2017. That's partly because of an expected increase in spending on Social Security, Medicare, and debt payments. Now, let's talk briefly about debt. Through the next decade, CBO estimates $9.5 trillion will be added to the national debt. And by 2025, CBO projects federal debt will rise to nearly 79% of gross domestic product. At the hearing, committee chairman, Representative Tom Price, said that lawmakers need to change the direction of policies because the country is on an unsustainable path. The CBO's predictions will give lawmakers a benchmark against which to measure the effects of proposed spending and tax law changes. You can find a copy of the report titled The Budget and Economic Outlook, 2015 to 2025 at www.novaco.com/hottopics. In other news, the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Chairman Richard Shelby and Ranking Member Sherrod Brown made an important announcement last week. They announced subcommittee chairmen and members for the 114th Congress. For the Subcommittee on Housing, Transportation, and Community Development. The chair is Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. I note, Senator Tim Scott was a co-sponsor of the New Market Tax Credit Permanency legislation in the last Congress. 
Also, the ranking member is Senator Robert Menendez from New Jersey. This subcommittee has jurisdiction over affordable housing, senior housing, Indian housing, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, and the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA. The subcommittee on economic policy will be chaired by its former ranking member, Senator Dean Heller from Nevada, and the new ranking member will be Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts. Among other things, the subcommittee on economic policy has jurisdiction over the Federal Reserve and the Office of Financial Research. For more of the latest news from Washington, as always, I invite you to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Novogratik. In affordable housing news, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, last week published the interim rule governing the Housing Trust Fund. As many of our listeners know, the Housing Trust Fund and the Capital Magnet Fund were authorized by Congress in 2008 to provide financing for the production and preservation of affordable housing. Congress directed both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to make annual contributions to the funds. The legislation passed more than six years ago, but because of the Great Recession, both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were placed into conservatorship and contributions to the funds were suspended. Fannie and Freddie have since returned to better fiscal solvency. So, this past December, the director of the FHFA, Mel Watt, directed the enterprises to begin setting aside contributions for the funds. As the administrator of the Housing Trust Fund, HUD published the interim rule and will submit a copy to the Senate and the House of Representatives. Barring a move to overturn the rule by a legislative body, which rarely happens, the rule takes effect 60 days after publication. Major provisions include income determinations, eligible costs and activities, and project requirements. HUD originally released a proposed Housing Trust Fund Allocation Formula in 2009 and proposed regulations in 2010. Well, the interim rule has a few significant differences from that proposed rule, including removal of a proposed incentive for transit-oriented developments and permitting the use of Housing Trust Fund funds for public housing under certain federal housing programs. Another change is the requirement that all funds target extremely low-income households when the Housing Trust Fund is less than $1 billion. Each of the states and the District of Columbia will receive a minimum, a floor allocation amount of $3 million. Now, factors that determine allocation amounts are a state's relative shortage of rental housing available to extremely low and very low-income families, the relative number of extremely low and very low-income renter households living in substandard, overcrowded, or unaffordable units in a particular state, and construction cost adjustment factors. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition, or NLIHC, also updated their estimates as to how much each state will receive as a result of the funding. The organization's estimate obviously acknowledges that the total amount will depend on the volume of business for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The NLIHC thus released two estimates, one based on if $250 million in funding is available in February 2016, I note, and the other based on if $500 million is available. Now, as I mentioned, the minimum state or floor amount that, that a state can receive is $3 million. So any states with less than that amount will get a slight boost, with others adjusted down accordingly. The largest estimated state allocations in the $250 million scenario, as you would expect, 
is California. That's at about $29 million. New York comes in next at about $19 million. In the $500 million scenario, California rises to $82 million, and New York is at about $51 million. Texas, Florida, and Illinois are the next three largest recipients. You can find HUD's interim rule, as well as the National Low-Income Housing Coalition's estimated state allocations, at www.taxcredithousing.com. And for additional information about the Housing Trust Fund, contact Peter Lawrence in our Washington, D.C. office. In related news, here's an interesting twist on that same story on housing trust funds. Senior House Financial Services Committee member Representative Ed Royce, a Republican from California, introduced a bill last week that would actually prevent Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac from actually funding the Housing Trust Fund and Capital Magnet Fund. His legislation would prohibit the enterprises from making payments to the funds while they're under conservatorship. And another provision would require allocations already transferred or set aside for the funds be used instead for deficit reduction. Royce introduced a nearly identical bill, H.R. 3901, in the last Congress. That bill had 22 co-sponsors, including House Financial Services Committee Chairman Jeb Henserling. A copy of the current legislation, the Payback to Taxpayers Act of 2015, can be found at www.novaco.com slash hottopics. Shifting gears now, the IRS will host a free webcast this week on taxes and bond updates for fiscal year 2015. Yes, that's a free webcast. Topics covered will include updates on the market segment audit program, the voluntary closing agreement program, including new processes, as well as other topics. The webcast will be presented by Rebecca Harrigal, Director of the IRS Office of Taxes and Bonds. It will be held this Thursday, February 5th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find registration information at www.irs.gov. And speaking of events, we at Novogratic are hosting a webinar on the General Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Compliance Rules, and it will be held this Friday. This webinar is designed for low-income housing tax credit property owners, asset managers, on-site managers, as well as anyone else interested in helping ensure that a property generates the full amount of tax credits it was awarded by remaining in compliance with long housing tax credit rules and regulations. Some of the topics that we'll cover include the differences between compliance versus extended use periods, applicable fraction versus minimum set-aside, transferring tenants, and the full-time student rule. This webinar will be this Friday, February 6th, from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and I note registration closes this Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on February 5th. Before we close out this housing section, I'd like to note that Buzz Roberts is leaving his role as the Director of Small Business, Community Development, and Housing Policy at the U.S. Treasury Department. The Affordable Housing and Community Development Community will miss the leadership that Buzz has provided at Treasury on these issues. Starting February 9th, that's next Monday, Buzz will be the president and CEO of the National Association of Affordable Housing Lenders, or NAL. We congratulate Buzz on this new opportunity and look forward to working with him in his new role. As many of you know, NAL represents many of the country's private lenders and investors in affordable housing and community economic development. Buzz will succeed Judy Kennedy, who has led NAL since 1998. Buzz actually is no stranger to NAL. 
He served on his board of directors from 1997 to 2010. He represented the Local Initiative Support Corporation, or LISC, where he was Senior Vice President for Policy and Program Development at the time. Buzz has also served on the boards of the National Housing Conference and the No Markets Tax Credit Coalition. Some of you may also know that before joining the Treasury in 2011, Buzz used to write a column for the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits. On behalf of my colleagues, I'd like to offer congratulations again to Buzz, and we do look forward to working with him in his new role at NAL. In New Market Tax Credit news, supporters of the program aren't wasting any time in trying to push through legislation they hope will keep the program running and make it more effective and efficient. The New Market Tax Credit Coalition expects companion bills in the House and the Senate to be introduced this week to make the New Market Tax Credit a permanent part of the tax code. The legislation will also likely include an adjustment for inflation for the annual credit authority, which means the 2015 rate would be closer to $4.8 billion, as well as a rule that would allow the New Market Tax Credit to offset the alternative minimum tax, that for investments made after 2014. In the Senate, it's expected that there'll be four original co-sponsors. Senator Roy Blunt, a Republican from Missouri, Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, and Ben Cardin, Democrat from Maryland. Senator Blunt is a member of the Republican leadership, and Senator Schumer, Scott, and Cardin sit on the Finance Committee. Meanwhile, in the House, Representatives Pat Tiberi, Republican from Ohio, and Richard Neal, Democrat from Massachusetts, are expected to lead the bill. Both Tiberi and Neal are senior members of the Ways and Means Committee and have been supporters of the New Market Tax Credit for years. Representative Tom Reed, a Republican from New York, from New York will also be an original co-sponsor. In fact, Tiberi, Neal, and Reed were all co-sponsors of the New Market Tax Credit Extension Act of 2014 during the last Congress. I'll share more details about the new New Market Tax Credit bill, or bills, as they become available. In state-level news, California Assemblyman Eduardo Garcia, along with Assemblyman Jose Mendina, last week introduced legislation to establish a 39% state new market tax credit. For those of you who attended Novogratz New Market Tax Credit Conference last month in San Diego, this is no surprise. We were fortunate to have California State Assemblyman Jose Medina share his intention to do this as part of his keynote on Friday morning. The legislation proposes up to $200 million in tax credits, with each dollar being matched by the same amount of private sector investment in a low-income area. The annual cap would be $40 million. If enacted, the California New Market Tax Credit Program would begin in 2016 and run through 2028. Now, there are 14 states with state-level New Market Tax Credit programs, including two of California's neighbors, Oregon and Nevada. State New Market Tax Credits encourage investment in struggling economic areas since they're almost always twinned with the federal credit. The California bill is similar to one passed by both the State Senate and State Assembly last year. Unfortunately, as you may recall, it was vetoed by Governor Jerry Brown, who was reelected as governor, so he remains in office. Brown said that he endorses programs that encourage private investments in local areas in vetoing the bill. However, the bill's $200 million cost needed to be weighed against other priorities during the state budget process. So, given that, it'll be interesting to see how far the bill gets in this legislative session. The next step for the bill is a policy committee assignment by the Assembly Committee on Rules. Those hearings start in April. We'll keep you posted on any progress, and in the meantime, you can find text of AB 185 
at www.newmarketscredits.com. And if you have any questions about the New Market Tax Credit Program, please contact my partner, Owen Gray, in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. In historic tax credit news, a chief counsel advice memorandum released last week by the Internal Revenue Service gives some clarifying guidance on one of several issues currently facing the historic tax credit preservation community. The memorandum addresses the amount of additional income recognized or required to be recognized by a lessee in a historic tax credit transaction that uses a lease pass-through structure. It's often referred to as Section 50D income. Due to a somewhat confounding series of tax law changes, it was less than clear as to whether 50D income is based on 50% or 100% of allowable historic tax credits. Last week's memorandum states that the income is based on 100% of the historic tax credit allowable. Now, there remain several other Section 50D income questions posed by the tax credit community that are unanswered pending some promised guidance from Treasury. These questions include, first, whether Section 50D income is a partner or partnership item. Second, whether a partner gets basis in its partnership interest for 50D income it's allocated. And similarly, how the Section 50D income affects basis of a parent corporation and the wholly owned subsidiary. And third, whether a tax credit investor's partner's exit from its tax credit investment triggers acceleration of the yet unamortized income. Now, there's some hope that IRS guidance could come before June 30th. Last week's Chief Counsel Vice Memorandum, I note, is number 2015-05038. A copy of it is posted at www.historictaxcredits.com. For questions regarding the implications of this guidance, as well as other thoughts regarding the other issues or the unanswered questions, I invite you to contact the Novogratic office nearest you. In other historic tax credit news, I have an update on a state program that we've been closely watching for more than a year now. I'm talking about the Rhode Island State Historic Tax Credit. The state Senate passed a fiscal year 2015 budget last June that unfortunately did not include funding for the Historic Tax Credit program. However, a commission that's examining the impact of the scaled-back historic tax credit did meet for the first time on January 22nd. The purpose of the commission is to make a comprehensive study and issue findings regarding the challenges facing commercial development and the redevelopment of historic buildings in Rhode Island, as well as the benefits of rehabilitating these buildings and the best ways to spur the building's reuse when it is in the interest of the state to do so. As listeners may know, the original Rhode Island State Historic Tax Credit was created back in 2001, but was discontinued in 2008. And then the program was temporarily revived in 2013 when the General Assembly agreed to reissue $34.5 million in unused credits. There are currently 10 projects totaling nearly $17 million in development that are in the program's qualification process. Senator Joshua Miller, who's the Commission's chair, said in an article in the Providence Journal that the Commission will do more than study the impact of the state historic tax credit. He said the Commission will also consider what other factors contributed to stalled activity in Rhode Island. And he said the Commission will look at what kind of incentives neighboring states offer, and then they'll consider whether Rhode Island would benefit from such incentives. The Commission must report its findings to the Senate on or before February 15th. The Commission itself will expire on April 30th. The Commission is called 
the, and I quote, Special Senate Commission to study the challenges facing commercial development and the redevelopment of historic buildings in Rhode Island. To learn more about the Rhode Island Historic Tax Credit, go to www.historictaxcredit.com. In other state-level news, the Iowa Department of Revenue released a comprehensive report on its State Historic Tax Credit Program. The Iowa Historic Preservation and Cultural Entertainment District Tax Credit was enacted in the year 2000. It equals 25% of qualified rehabilitation expenditures for substantial rehab of eligible commercial and residential property. This tax credit is fully refundable and transferable. The Iowa credit cap started at $2.4 million and has increased over the years to a current cap of $45 million. The study said that more than $348 million in state HTCs have been reserved for 758 projects over the past 15 years. That covers 52 of Iowa's 99 counties. The study looked more closely at the past five years, since that was when the survey was introduced. Among the properties in the detailed study, the new present value of property tax revenues after the rehabilitation was expected to be about 43% more than the tax credit awards issued, meaning a net gain to state coffers just on the property tax revenues alone. And it was good for state businesses too. During that time, more than 84% of the development expenditures were on Iowa-sourced goods and services. The study also showed that the average annual wages for employees at historic tax credit properties went up 21.3% after the rehabilitation. That's compared to the average growth rate of less than 15% in the state as a whole over the time period of the study. The state tax credit program was modified in last year's session changing from a lottery-based award system to a scoring system based on project readiness and rules-based assessments. Unclaimed credits also can now be awarded to different projects. Iowa, as you may know, is one of 35 states with their own historic tax credit program. I note that 17 of those states have the same 25% rate. The report is called, quote, Iowa's Historic Preservation and Cultural and Entertainment District Tax Credits Program Evaluation Study, close quote. You can find a copy of the report and more information about other state historic tax credit programs at www.historictaxcredits.com. For more information about the historic tax credit program in Iowa, contact my partner Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In renewable energy tax credit news, I'd like to discuss some recent comments that Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado made regarding the Production Tax Credit, or PTC. In a question and answer with the Greeley Tribune in Greeley, Colorado, Senator Bennett discussed the importance of extending the Production Tax Credit. Senator Bennett said that extension of the program would give the industry much-needed predictability. And he added that the PTC doesn't just help build renewable energy facilities, it helps stabilize an entire manufacturing industry. Senator Bennett said that the industry growth can occur in two ways. One, if the PTC is extended, and two, if the tax code is permanently reformed to support the renewable energy sector, including wind. Senator Bennett has been a strong supporter of the renewable energy industry for a number of years now. And I note that he and Senator Heller of Nevada were recently named co-chairs of the Senate Finance Committee's Working Group on Community Development and Infrastructure. To learn more about the PTC, go to www.energytaxcredits.com. In state-level news, two Oklahoma legislators introduced legislation yesterday that would reduce three state tax credits related to wind power. The legislation was introduced both in the Oklahoma's 
Senate, and the House, and it would establish a $6 million cap for the zero emissions tax credit. Its authors are State Representative Earl Sears and State Senator Mike Mazie. The two legislators say that wind power incentives are too generous and need to be modified. The legislation would gradually reduce the zero emissions tax credit for new industrial wind facilities. It would reduce them from half a cent per kilowatt hour in the first year to one-tenth of a cent in the fifth year. It would also eliminate the ability of wind facilities to use the state's investment and new jobs tax credit. A further provision would adjust the state's property tax policy to eliminate wind manufacturing's exemption from the jobs creation requirement that other industries must meet. Oklahoma, I should note, generates the fourth most electricity from wind of any state. I also note that the state's tax credit reimbursement costs did rise from $41 million in 2002 to $64 million in 2013, and half of that rise comes from wind farms. However, Jeff Clark of the Wind Coalition testified in October to the Oklahoma State Senate that there has been more than $6 billion in capital investment in Oklahoma from the state's $120 million investment over those years. I note that legislation in Oklahoma must be assigned to committees and then has to get passed by each house of legislature. And as is fairly typical, any differences in the bills have to be worked out. The bill is passed again in both houses, and then it could go to the governor for signature. Once the bill texts are available, we will post them at www.energytaxcredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.